Last week, we started a series on the doctrine of Scripture, that is, what is Scripture, and what does it mean to us. And we talked in general terms last time, but this week I want to talk about the concept of revelation. Not the book of Revelation, John's book of Revelation, but the actual concept of revelation. What is revelation? And I have two main points today. You have to wait for point two, but point one is, God is a revelational God. God is a revelational God. That is, God reveals himself to his creation. By his revelation, he shows us who he is and what his will is for us. Now, one question we want to ask ourselves is, is there really a need for revelation? Well, because of God's transcendence, God doesn't have a physical body and walk among us right now. We cannot know God without his revealing himself to us. Adam and Eve could not have known much about God without God communicating to them. And beyond that, man's sinfulness darkens his senses. You might remember 2 Corinthians 4.4. It says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So even God's Revelation in the gospel cannot be properly seen without spiritual eyes from God. We good? One, two, check, check. Okay. So remember, as we talk about revelation, not only do we need God's revelation, we need him to give us the ability to perceive it and to receive it. Now, there are two broad categories of revelation First of all, general revelation, and next, special revelation. General revelation and special revelation. So, general revelation and special revelation. First of all, general revelation is what we learn about God and his will through natural means, not through words. It's the knowledge of God that can be seen by everyone. And there are several ways we get this general revelation. One is creation. Creation. Psalm 19, verse 1. You can know this one says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. So God shows his glory in the heavens. Also look at Romans 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 25. <clears throat> Romans 1, verse, sorry, verse 20 to 25. And notice what this says about what creation can show us about God. Romans 1, 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So they can see God's eternal power and his divine nature clearly seen through what has been made. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity 
so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The creation shows us that there is a God and that he is powerful and glorious, but it can only show us enough to condemn us, not enough to save us. Even the limited revelation we have through creation leads to sin. People see the creation, know that God is there, he is powerful, he is glorious, and yet they worship that creation instead of the creator. Now, it should be that someone who looks at the wonders of creation should in some way be driven to the creator. Just think about the number of stars visible to Abraham when God told him to count them. There are maybe, depending on your estimate, a few thousand stars visible to the naked eye. But with our modern understanding of the cosmos, it's estimated that there are two trillion galaxies in the observable universe. That's one galaxy for every dollar of deficit we have, I think, every year in our national uh, budget. But anyway, and someone estimated that there are 100 million stars in the average galaxy. Just take 2 trillion, multiply it by 100 million, and that's an estimate as to how many stars there are in our universe, never mind how many planets and uh, all sorts of other debris, mass, energy, all that stuff out there that God created with just a word. And just think, looking more at the, at the smaller level now, think about how little anyone knew of the human body until very recently. And now we know that our bodies consist of trillions of cells, and each of those cells is something of a world unto itself. So you look in the big, you see God's majesty, his power, his creativity. You look very small, and you see God's, his power, his creativity, his glory. But when the hardness of man's heart without Christ collides with God's revelation in creation, the effect of this knowledge is very different. You have those who worship creation rather than the creator, as we saw in Romans 1, 5, or 1, uh, uh, Romans 1, 20 to 25. Or you have those who deny the creator altogether. And it's interesting, uh, our, Brother Keith is in the science field. He knows lots of scientists, lots of people who teach science. And how many of them believe even in a God, much less are biblical Christians? Yeah, probably can count them on one hand, perhaps. And it's estimated that maybe 10%, 15% of Americans don't believe in God. But if you talk to scientists, you interview scientists, you poll scientists, there are ranges from 60 to 90% of scientists who study these things day in, day out, who don't believe even in God. These people see better than most of us the power and greatness of God in creation, and yet they're among the strongest in their denial of God. And that just shows how dark the human heart is and how much we need the Spirit of God to help us. We looked at 2 Corinthians before. 1 Corinthians says something similar. Chapter 2, verse 14 says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. It's not just that he doesn't want to, but he cannot, because they are spiritually appraised. And so creation itself is not enough to save us, but it is enough to condemn us. Another kind of general revelation besides creation is history. History. Sometimes God's hand is evident in his providential control of all things. <clears throat> we won't talk about this much, but Daniel 2.21, as an example, says, it is God who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. 
He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. So we do see God's hand in history. We also see God's hand in conscience, another general revelation in our conscience. If you're Romans chapter 1, look at Romans chapter 2, verse 14. And Paul here says, When Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So God reveals himself in conscience. People have a natural, though flawed, sense of right and wrong. And it's an indication that the Creator distinguishes between right and wrong. It's interesting to hear uh, secular scientists, atheist scientists, try to explain where the conscience comes from. How is it that people who don't even necessarily get taught a particular religious view or a moral view still have this innate sense of right and wrong? And we all have seen it with little kids who have a sense of guilt, even when they do something wrong. They have a sense of maybe a sneakiness and a sense of shame when they get caught. Even before they're taught, before they understand what they're doing, they, they have this conscience in them. And it's tried to be explained in many evolutionary ways. It has some evolutionary advantage, which never really seemed to make much sense to me. But we do know that God puts a conscience within all of us and Again, it's flawed, it's not perfect, it needs to be instructed, but it does point us to some kind of right and wrong. So, general revelation, we have creation, we have history, we have conscience. And these are fallible means of revelation, and they're also incomplete. And by their nature, they can't show us the breadth of what God wants to communicate about himself. So we can learn about God's existence, about his greatness, his power, his wisdom, his knowledge, his goodness... To an extent, as Paul said in Acts 14, he was speaking to some Gentiles at a place called Lystra. Then he says, In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So God shows his goodness just by giving us rain and, and food and so many good things. So certain things about God we can see, but we need more than that to come to a full knowledge of God. And that's where we come to special revelation. We have general revelation, and now we have special revelation. And this is what we learn about God and his will through supernatural means. And this knowledge is revealed only to a few. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 2. Verses 9 through 12. It's a fairly long passage here about God's wisdom. But look at verse 9. As it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Just as you don't know what I'm thinking, I don't know what you're thinking unless you tell me, 
even then you might be lying. I don't know exactly what you're thinking necessarily. We can't know what God is thinking unless he reveals himself to us. In this case, Paul says God reveals himself through his spirit. God's revealed these things through the spirit. Well, there are a number of kinds of special revelation. and Let's look at a few. First of all, casting lots. You might remember in Acts 1, we won't go to all these passages, but remember they needed to replace Judas in the 12, and so they selected Matthias. They cast lots to choose who was the, the next one to, to take his place. We also have something that's kind of strange and not altogether understood by us, the Urim and Thummim. Look at Exodus 28. The Urim and Thummim or Thummim. These are something like casting lots, as far as we understand. But Exodus 28, verse 30, is speaking of the, a breastplate that the high priest wore. It says, You shall put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. And Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. Now, if we go now to Numbers 27, there's more about this Urim and Thummim. Thummim Numbers 27, verse 21. It says, Moreover, he shall stand before Eleazar the priest. This is talking about Joshua after Moses is gone. Joshua shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. And at his command they shall go out, and at his command they shall come in, Come in, both he and the sons of Israel with him, even all the congregation. So this Urim and Thummim, whatever it is, casting lots or something like that, God will reveal his his will to his people through this means. God also reveals himself through visions and dreams. We've seen a lot of these in our study of Genesis. There's Abimelech. There's Jacob. God reveals himself to in a dream. Laban. Joseph, of course. Pharaoh. God shows his will and his purposes. Solomon is spoken to in a dream in 1 Kings 3. Nebuchadnezzar, we know that from Daniel chapter 2 and 4. Isaiah had a vision in Isaiah chapter 6. God spoke to him through that vision. In the book of Acts, we have Ananias, who's given a vision when he's told he needs to help take care of Paul, who's just been converted. Cornelius and Peter have dreams. Cornelius, the first Gentile convert to Christianity. Paul, later on, chapter 16, has a, a dream, a vision from God by which God guides him. And, of course, John, the apostle in the book of Revelation, throughout the whole thing, gets words from God in visions and dreams. We also have God reveal himself in a special way with an audible voice. Remember uh, a boy in the Old Testament who heard God's voice? Remember Samuel? Yeah, little Samuel, and God speaks to him, and he keeps going back to the, the priest, Eli, and says, Hey, you called me. He says, no, God is speaking. And then he said, speak, Lord, your servant hears. Also, God spoke out of heaven in Matthew 3, when Jesus is baptized. A voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. So God reveals at Jesus' baptism that Jesus is his son. And again, at the transfiguration, several places, but Luke 9.35 says this, a voice came out of a cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, Listen to him. So God speaks through these the lots, the Urim and Thummim, 
visions and dreams, audible voice. Also, theophanies. Theophanies. This is an appearance of God in physical form. Look back at Genesis chapter 18. These are kind of interesting incidents to trace out through the Old Testament. Genesis 18. Verse 1. It says, Now the Lord appeared to him, that is, Abram, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. So, God, the Lord, revealed himself to Abraham in this way, himself in a physical form, and then two angels we see later with him. And he spoke to Abraham, revealed himself, revealed his will, in this case talking about how he was going to uh, destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and also as he, uh, more importantly, said that she was going to have a son by Abraham, that Sarah was. So God speaks to Abraham through this appearance. And then also in the burning bush, Exodus 3, we have the angel of the Lord speaking to Moses from this bush. And these appearances of God, these theophanies, are generally regarded as a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. So the second person of the Trinity appearing in a human form, not having been incarnated like he would be in the New Testament time through Mary, but appearing in the form as a man and speaking to his people. God also reveals himself through angels. He reveals his word through angels. You might remember Gabriel speaking to Daniel. Gabriel doesn't just show up in the New Testament. He's in the Old Testament as well, and he speaks to Daniel chapter 9. Gabriel speaks to Zacharias in Luke 1, telling Zacharias about the coming of Zacharias' son, John the Baptist, and then later on comes to Mary and tells her that one was going to come to her, uh, that the Spirit of the Lord is going to come upon her, and she's going to bear the Son of God. And then, of course, in Luke 2, we have the angels announcing to the shepherds of the birth of Christ. So God revealed his sending of his son to these shepherds through these angels. Perhaps the most common way of God revealing himself in the Old Testament, I think it's probably certain, in many, many places God speaks through the prophets. He speaks to the prophets so they would communicate God's message to the people. So God gives a message to Jonah to take to Nineveh, and many other prophets are sent to Israel. And so, and we will look at particular ones, but you know these if you've read any of the prophetic books, the word of the Lord came to whoever it was, and then he spoke. So God speaks to the prophets. The prophets then give God's word to the people. Another way God reveals himself in a special way is through miracles. Miracles. The ten plagues, for example, in Exodus show that the God of Israel was the true God, and God was going to let his people out of that bondage into this promised land. Other miracles during the Exodus, like the manna, provision of water, provision of the the quail, God shows through those miracles that he's powerful and that he's kind and good and caring for these people. We also know in New Testament times that Christ's miracles demonstrated his power, his divinity, his authority over creation. And the signs, these miracles, also attested the words of the apostles and prophets. So God would send 
not only his word, but his power, his miracles through these prophets. Second uh, Corinthians 12.12, 12, Paul says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So God often accompanied his spoken word with the power of miracles to attest that these are indeed words from God. God also reveals himself specially in Christ, in Christ himself, in his Son. We saw this some weeks ago in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The opening verses of this book says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So God spoke through the prophets. In the last days he has spoken in his Son. Turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. And see how these words talk about how God reveals himself. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And what does light do? Light shows things, it reveals things, doesn't it? Verse 9, There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, that is, the word was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So God shows his glory in creation, Romans 1. He shows his glory in his Son, John 1.14. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So Moses gives the law, and we see grace and truth through Jesus Christ's coming. And no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So the Son who comes explains God. He says who God is. People can't see God. They see what God is like through his creation. But the Son, it is, is the one who reveals the Father to the world. So the special revelation of God comes through Jesus Christ. John 17, verse 8, says this, and Jesus is praying to the Father before his crucifixion. He says, The words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. And you might remember, in our study of the Gospels, how many times Jesus says, or or John's word says, he is sent from God, he is sent from God, sent from the Father. Jesus came from the Father. 
He gave words to the disciples. They received them and understood them, and they believed that Christ was sent by the Father. So this is a communication from God the Father through his Son to the disciples and all those who would believe through their word. And so in the words, in the ministry, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we see, as Paul says in Colossians 2, verse 9, all the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form. And we especially see God's love, mercy, and grace in a way we couldn't see in just the creation. So God reveals himself specially in all these ways. But the one we're talking about especially in these days to come is in the Bible itself, in his word. And in the Bible, we see God preserving much of the other means of special revelation. So while we didn't get uh, have Christ in our own midst, we have God's word who that tells us about the coming of Christ. While we didn't receive ourselves directly the word uh, from God, say through Isaiah or Jeremiah, we have those words written down so that we ourselves might receive them and believe on them and know God better. So these other special revelations we have are given to us through the means of the scripture. Now, obviously, the Bible doesn't contain all that God could say to us. There are many questions we might have that we just don't have answers to, at least not yet. But John 20, verse 30, John says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So in the Gospel of John, he mentions seven signs. But Jesus said, or John says there are many other signs Jesus gave when he was here. He didn't write them all down. We don't even have all of them in the four Gospels. And then later in John, it says, chapter 21, verse 25, there are many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Now, it would be interesting if we somehow had a video of all Jesus' ministry, if we could somehow go back in time and get a video camera, and we knew Aramaic and Greek and all those other languages, and we could just follow him around, and we could get uh, this demonstration of all of his power, all of his words, all these things written down for us. And yet, that isn't necessary for, for us. We have enough in the four Gospels, the rest of the New Testament, and all of God's word to know enough about Christ, that he is the Son of God, he's the Savior of the world. The Bible contains everything we need to know about God and how he wants us to live. Now, we believe that today, the only means of special revelation God is using is the Bible. Now, that may not always be the case for the future. For example, we have in Revelation 14.6, there's an angel flying in mid-heaven preaching the eternal gospel. But right now, there's no angel in mid-heaven. We just look for God's revealed words in his word. So for now, we should seek God's revealed will in his word. Now, let me say again, these revelations have no force unless the Holy Spirit is at work in the heart. In the days of the Bible, people ignored God's visions. They heard God's voice and did not repent. They were visited by angels and ignored them. They heard the words of the prophets and their hearts grew harder. They saw miracles from God and did not humble themselves or give thanks. And they saw and heard God in human flesh and crucified him. So it's no surprise if someone without Christ hears the word of God and rejects it. 
the real miracle is when God takes a heart of stone and turns it into a heart of flesh. And when God takes a rebel sinner and makes him his friend. So we have God's word. We love God's word. It's powerful, but it needs to be joined with the power of the spirit. The the words themselves can't transform a heart unless God is at work in that heart. We'll remind ourselves the first point was that God is a revelational God. He reveals himself in general ways and in specific ways, in particular now in his word. But our second point is that God is a relational God. God is a revelational God because he is a relational God. And one of the beautiful realities of the Trinity is that within the Godhead, there was perfect, loving relationship between the Father, Son, and Spirit before the, before time even began. And God didn't need to create relational beings like angels and humans because he was lonely and needed someone to talk to. I was thinking of the story of Pinocchio. Remember Pinocchio? We have Geppetto, the lonely old man, and he makes himself a little wooden boy to help him not feel so lonely. And then he wishes that the boy would become a real boy. I think some people think God is like that. He's up in heaven. Either he's bored or he's lonely way back. And he thinks, well, I think I'll just make some people and see what what comes of it. But God didn't create the universe because he was lonely or because he was bored. He already had in, in the, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, perfect fellowship, perfect joy, perfect relationships. But he did create us out of desire to know us and to be known by us. And when you see things in the perspective of, of God's sovereign uh, trinity, it really helps open up what this all really means. God didn't create us because uh, he, he had to, but because he wanted to give a gift to his son. And he wanted this gift to his son to be something that the son himself would redeem. And then we have the spirit applying that salvation to us. And so we see the the Trinity in its relation to the, the history of salvation that really enriches our understanding of who God is and what he's doing for us. We see it as us as a love gift to his son. We see relationships between God and men throughout scripture. Um, Adam and Eve, they're in the beginning walking with God. That shows that they are relating to God. And what happened when they sinned? Immediately that relationship was broken, but then it was reconciled through God's grace. A few chapters later, we see that Enoch walked with God. Again, a relationship between Enoch and the Lord. The Noah, amidst all the wickedness around him, he finds favor with God, and God speaks to him and rescues him. We also see in Genesis 12, Genesis 12, let's look there, Briefly, I think you know this well, but just remind ourselves. Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
We see later in James chapter 2, 23, that Abraham was a friend of God. And so God establishes a relationship with this man, Abram. We don't know much about what his background was. We do know that he, at some point, worshipped false gods. But more than Abram reaching out for God, God first reached out towards Abram. And God gives Abram a promise that I don't think Abram would dare to ask for, this great blessing to become a nation and to, in Abram, in Abraham, all the families of the earth we bless. God establishes a relationship between uh, himself and Abraham and all of Abraham's descendants. The centuries later, God revealed himself to Moses out of the burning bush and later at the top of a mountain. And it says in Exodus 33 that the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face just as a man speaks to his friend. And so God could have acted like the God of the deists who starts the universe going and just watches what happens, kind of like a giant wind-up toy. God could have left Adam and Eve on their own, trying to find the meaning of life for themselves. It would have been just, wouldn't it, if Adam and Eve sinned for God to cast them out of the garden and let them wander forever without him. But God restores that relationship. He, He didn't leave that relationship sundered. Instead, he talked to them about himself and his purpose for them. And when Adam and Eve sinned, they hid. They tried to break off their relationship with God, but God sought them out. He removed their inadequate, self-made coverings and gave them the proper covering for their sin. And then throughout the Old Testament, we see him sending again and again his prophets to reach out to a stubborn and rebellious people. The people rebel against God. They want to rip themselves away from that relationship with God, but God keeps reaching out again to establish, to restore that relationship. And then when the time was right, God sent his son so that a countless multitude could be reconciled to him. Remember, Jesus sent his son to seek and save that which was lost. He loved us so much that he made a way for us to be saved. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, And although you were formerly alienated, separated from God, you were hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order that to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So we have this broken relationship and God through his son is restoring that relationship because God is a revelational God. God gave, or a relational God, he gives his revelation so that we can be related to him through his son. Even though we were formerly alienated, we were hostile in mind, we were engaged in evil deeds, God had another, a better plan. Look at Romans chapter 5, again, talking about God restoring this relationship with sinful people. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith 
into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Verse 8, But God demonstrates his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So through Christ, we were separate, we who were separated from God are now reconciled to God. In John 17, 3, Jesus says that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And we t- tend to think of eternal life as just as saving us from our sins, and that's, that's certainly important. It's critical in our salvation. But the, the greater reality is that God has saved us, not just so that we don't go to hell, but so that we can be related to him forever. And Paul says in Philippians 3.8, He counts all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So all the things that are taught in the gospel, all the things we know about Christ are meant to bring us in right relationship to God. So God made us relational creatures. After Adam was created, there was one thing that was not good. What was the one thing that wasn't good after Adam was created? He didn't have a helper suitable to him. There was a relationship missing, wasn't there? And he was alone. But God made a companion for him. And after Adam sinned, there was an even greater problem that man and women were separated from God. And again, God provided the remedy. And so if you have heard of the revelation of God, if you love his word, if you know Christ, you can rejoice that God has given you ears to hear. And as Paul did, you can keep pressing on toward full knowledge of Christ, toward a perfect Christ-likeness. Now, some people want revelation without relationship. They want to know all the things in the Bible, maybe, to be puffed up with knowledge about the Bible, but they don't care about truly knowing God. Like those who want to know all the things they can about science, but don't care about the creator of the world, the one who makes science possible. We don't want to have revelation without relationship. I'm not here to teach you the Bible just so that you can be smarter when you leave today. But I want to teach you this word so that you will know Christ better and be more like him and love him more. To be drawn tighter in bonds of love with Christ. There are others who have relationship or want relationship with God without revelation. This is kind of a smorgasbord buffet style religion. I think that God is like this. I think God is like that. I believe God is like this. Kind of a build-your-own-religion idea. We don't want to do that either. We want our ideas about who God is to come from his word, not from our own intuition, our own desires to make God into a Santa Claus or whatever it might be. We want to take what we know about God to be from his word, what he's revealed himself to be to us. So don't look for revelation without relationship. But also don't look for a relationship without revelation. We need both. We need to know God's word, to love God's word, and let that love for God's word, understanding from God's word, to drive us to know him better. Yeah. Paul begins to go through the words. He also talks about 
Yeah, that, that's a good observation. That's something we can do. As you read God's Word, you can ask yourself, what does this teach me about God? What does it teach me about myself? You can ask yourself also, what does this teach me about how God is reaching out to me? How we can relate better to Him? How can I know Him better? Is it grace, peace, hope, love? All those things drive me closer and closer to, to God through Jesus Christ. Good. Well, any other comments or questions before we wrap up? That's a difficult question to ask. What I want to say is, no, he didn't. But I, you can't sort of prove that they believe that. It's hard to talk them out of it. So you might just encourage them to, to focus on the word of God. If they're doing something utterly foolish and contrary to God's word, you might say, I, I don't think it's, that's the case because God wouldn't tell you to do something that was wrong or foolish. Um, Yeah, I, it's hard to know, depending on my relationship with them, perhaps, and maybe trying over time to encourage them to focus on God's word. If, if you, if somebody says, God told me this, and you say, no, he didn't, even though you may want to, that doesn't necessarily help them understand any better. And it makes them defensive, and it will sort of shut off further communication. So if you want to help them to, to, grow and to learn more, it might be better to, over time, encourage them to, to focus on God's word and what he says through this word and not just shut them down. But those, I don't like those <laughs> those kind of things. Then What do I do with this? Yeah. Yes. Sure. He created um, mankind ultimately as, as a love gift to his son to, to, so that he could give his son a bride that his, his son would redeem and then could live forever with him in heaven. That's, that's the, the big story of, of salvation. And so it wasn't just we're not God's playthings, we're not his toys, that he, he made puppets or something. He, he made us to redeem us to show his power, his glory, and his love. Well, you think of uh, Ephesians 5, talking about the, the bride of Christ and how Christ redeemed a bride for himself and that many pastors where God gave um, gave people to a son, several pastors in John, where those who the Father has given to me will come to me, and I will not cast them out. So it, there are a number of things that we can kind of collectively understand that God, the Father, gave a people to the Son, and in the metaphor of Ephesians 5 and in Revelation, that this 
this people is a bride for his son, Christ, and there'll be a, the wedding supper of the Lamb and so forth. Any other questions? All right, let's close in prayer. Father, these are, are deep matters, but they are glorious things to know that you, while you are transcendent, you are perfect, you are holy, you are righteous, you are all-powerful, all-knowing, you have created us. We are fallible in so many ways. We are sinful. We are limited in our knowledge and our, our power. Yet you have used us as vessels of, of grace, of mercy, and, and made us to be a bride, a holy bride for your son, Jesus Christ. And while we are in no way worthy of this, we rejoice to be part of this great plan of salvation. We pray that you'd help us to see ourselves in that light, even when we, we might get discouraged. We might think that there's little hope in this life, and we hold on to the hope we have in Christ and, and see our lives from the eternal perspective. And for those, perhaps, who don't know Jesus here today, we pray that you would bring them into relationship with you. May you open their eyes, their spiritual eyes, by your Spirit, through your Word, to believe in Jesus Christ and become part of that great multitude that will rejoice and praise you forever. We pray these things in his name. Amen.